This episode of the podcast would not be possible without the support of our fantastic sponsor, Everyday Lines. Anyone in the Devonport area may be able to identify a tall, skinny, passionate bloke who you see running and riding absolutely everywhere. For those who don't know, that's champion runner and great bloke Brian Lyons. Brian's also a running coach and mentor and his Everyday Lions running coaching programs are inclusive and cater for all age groups from kids right up to retirees. Training sessions are held in different locations from the Devonport area to Burnie and you can choose from group training, 8, 12, 16 week or yearly programs. Whatever your goal is, Brian will help you smash it as many have with his proven coaching techniques. You can find Brian at Everyday Lions on Facebook, Instagram or at his website www.everydaylions.org. And while you're at it, look out for some of the fantastic events organised by Everyday Lions events, including Run Devonport, The Great Train Race, The Light Night Glow Run, and the Devonport Christmas Fun Run, just to name a few. We'll see you at the starting line. Tough times don't last, but tough people do. On this edition of the pod, the inspirational story of Brett Christie. Breaking his ankle during a seemingly harmless staff versus students game of basketball, Brett tells of his journey to regain his mobility and how after exploring every option, he and his family made the decision for him to become an amputee. We talk about setbacks he had to endure along the way, but how this decision enabled him rather than disabled him. What he and his family have endured, his outlook on life now and what he's achieved since will touch and inspire many, I'm sure. We speak about his journey through breaking down stereotypes early in life, living in Japan, his accident and numerous operations and the toll this took on him and those close to him, his beautiful relationship with his wife and kids and how this gave them all strength during tough times and where he is in life now. He also throws in a few funny stories about his life and being an amputee, including insulting Japanese mothers and making beachgoers wary of shark bites. Brett's a wonderful speaker. It was an honour and an absolute pleasure to chat with him and to hear his story and I can't wait to hear what you think of it. Welcome back to the Talk Hard Podcast. I'm Jake. I'm Briley. I'm Sonny. We hope you enjoy today's episode. I've got half an opportunity here. I'm going to take it this time. <laughs> he sat there for two songs and he goes, he likes to shit up and then he left. When I die, I want everyone <laughs> to have shots and I want you to use my coffin as the bar. I collapsed and, and they couldn't find a heartbeat for a couple of minutes. I would give everything, anything that I've got right now to hear my mum sing again. Could just go into the house and fucking do it and no one would care, but people do care. He said, Thank you for saving my life. The Talk Art Podcast with Brendan Hinkson. Oh, mate, it doesn't uh, get much bigger than this. <laughs> <laughs> Brett Christie, welcome to the Talk Art Podcast, mate. Oh, thanks, pleasure to be here. Pleasure to have you here. A lot of people's stories I, I know about, but there's so many stories out there that, um, that you don't know about. And one of the reasons that I put a call out from time to time to people is that, you know, this is the whole reason why I wanted to do what I do is to get these stories out there that people don't know about. So we have to give a shout out to the great man Guido yeah. for, um, for putting you in, mate. It was a bit of a shock. Uh, I, try, I was racking my brain who actually put my name in there and I thought it might have been the great Peter Brown because he'd been on a podcast uh, right about that. Similar story, yeah. Yeah. Yep, Better Off Dad podcast. Everyone needs to get onto that as well. But um, yeah, Guido doing great things at the Trobe Footy Club at the moment. So um, yeah, you'll certainly be listening to this podcast. I hope I do him some justice. (laughs) I'm sure you will, mate. Um, so how you been anyway? How's things? Yeah, not too bad. Yep. Look, I'm excited to be here. One of the best podcasts going around, I've heard. So uh, I've been waiting for an invite for quite a while. But yeah. uh, there's a carton of beer waiting outside for <laughs> it. No, look, life's good. Um, you know, I have a few ups and downs here and there, but I guess uh, that's just life. Everyone yep. um, has that sort of experience. So yeah, no, I, I had a bit of a fall the other week, which sort of slowed me down a bit. But yep. um, towards the tail end of that and getting back to 
to uh, life as usual. Back to a bit of normality again. Yep. Yeah, yep. And obviously, you know, we'll get into your story because a few people will know a few things about it. But um, tell us about where it all started for you, mate. So you're born in Devonport, is that right? Yeah, born in Devonport. Yep. I've, I've listened to a few podcasts now and there's a lot of people born at the maternity hospital in Devonport. Yep. So, uh, which is gone now. It's gone now, which is unfortunate. <laughs> but yeah, born in Devonport, but uh, raised in a small town. Um, called Wagina out the back of Deloraine at the, the base of Mount Roll. And the, yeah. Well, actually, I had to, after I was talking to her, I had to Google it because I'd, I'd heard of Wagina, but I'd never actually been there. So it's sort of, yeah, it's, it's sort of Elizabethtown, that sort, yeah, sort so of Yeah, so Kimberley, out the back of Kimberley way there. Yep. Yeah. No, there's no real reasons to go there unless you know someone, I wouldn't imagine. That's the next thing I was going to ask you. What is there to do at Wagina for a kid? Uh, we were lucky that... Um, the, the there was a lot of family that lived on the street or the road um and so there was quite a bit of land that was owned yep. and so quite a few farms and one of the oh, he wasn't my direct family member but uh grew up like he was a grandfather he owned quite a bit of land along the um, mersey river yep so we used to do a lot of fishing Excellent. hunting camping along there and yeah just uh there's a lot of farm work that that you did but um had a lot of fun as well so yep. So you're pretty active as a kid then? Yeah, very active. So dad was a big basketball head. Yep. Um, he grew up in Melbourne and played a lot of basketball over there. Um, got married and moved to Tasmania and, and carried that on playing A grade out at um, Deloraine. So we yep. grew up with the basketball in, in our hands. Yep. Uh, yeah, I had three brothers and a sister. So, yep. you know, the brothers were pretty competitive and yep. our sister was as well, actually. She used to towel us up a bit. But yep. Yeah, so we all grew up playing sports and uh, hanging out with family and, yeah, doing general farm work and, and bits and pieces. Yep. Yeah. So what do you reckon, like, your upbringing sort of taught you, obviously working at an early age and, and that sort of thing? Do you sort of look back at any life lessons that you sort of put into, into place now? Yeah, I was really lucky. Two great parents. Dad was a community development officer with the council. Yep. I'm the end of Valley Council out there. So he, he worked really hard and... Um, was very driven and and uh, coached a lot of basketball. Like he he used to leave early and come home late, and if he wasn't working, he was you know helping out, volunteering as a coach or something. Yep. Um, and mum was a nurse at the Dillerain Hospital, so yep. both parents worked and they taught us how to work and the the value of it. Yep. Um, and yeah, there was nothing really that we couldn't achieve. That's sort of what they put into us. If you you work hard, then you're going to get results and um, I know from a young age um, I didn't realize it but that's what they were teaching us yep. and uh, yeah it's not until later on in life when you have a few experiences you realize how valuable those lessons are. So um, from Wagina then you sort of moved around a little bit is that right? Yeah so sold uh, the, the farm up in around 2000 so once I finished um, I was the youngest so once I finished high school uh, mum and dad decided to move into Portsrell. Yep. So we went to Portsrell and I went on to Don College for year 11 and um, part of year 12. Yep. How'd yeah. you go at school? Yeah, I was pretty good. Yep. Um, I, in saying that, I was a bit of a rat bag, but um, I, I enjoyed learning. Yep. Um, but being out at Deloraine, you could be a, a bit of a character without being seen because yep. there was worse characters you could be anonymous <laughs> yeah yeah so no i went you know i always tried out for everything and uh you know got on the the school council in primary school and then in high school i was um student executive president and you know i did everything i could and and tried hard and yeah i um i guess learning because i had that 
desire to learn. Um, I enjoyed school quite a bit. Yep. So you you played other sports as well as basketball, did you say? You played footy and that yeah, sort of stuff, did you? Yeah, played a bit of footy towards the later years. Yep. Um, in primary school, yeah, basketball was my one and only sort of thing. Yep. And then I mentioned to Dad I wouldn't mind playing football, but there was only two sports offered at the time, and it was football and netball, and Dad wasn't real keen. He said, if you, if you go on football, you know, there's a fair chance you'll get injured, and if you really want to get good at your basketball, play netball. Yep. He said, you're passing, you're shooting, you're speed, you're the, same you're read of the game. Yeah, he said, that'll be, uh, that'll be where you get bang for your buck if you, if you want to play sport, and so... Oh, it had never been done before because all the boys played football yeah. and all the girls played netball. Yep. So I was lucky my teacher at the time um, was the netball coach and I sort of mentioned it to her and she said, I'll take you. Yep. Um, so I started playing netball. Yep. Um, so now for all these people out there that play mixed netball, they can thank you for that. There you, you go. You broke yeah, the mold. I did and I, I made <laughs> it into Northern Midlands, which um, I was the first. Oh, there was me and another. So once I started playing, there was another boy that started playing as well, a mate of mine. Yep. Um, so we both played and got into the Northern Midlands squad. And then from Northern Midlands, they picked a state all-star team. And I was the first to be select, first male to be selected for that. Yep. So, yeah. Um, so, again, just going back to your, your Don College day. So after that, though, you, you started to move around a little bit, didn't you? You moved, moved to Queensland, is yeah, that right? Yeah, went, went to Queensland. So yep. partway through year 12, I... I sort of thought, no, I've had enough of this cold and just got itchy feet. So I yep. went north and, um, yeah, went and I've always been someone that loved the ocean. Yep. Um, so, yeah, decided to go north. Had a uncle and auntie that were nice enough to house me up there and started um, working up there and worked in a uh, Ingham's Chicken Slaughterhouse, actually. Which yeah, right. Was pretty hard work, um, yep. but good pay. So when I wasn't there, I was out at the beach um, surfing and yeah, just having a bit of fun. Yep. So you're about 18, were you, when you moved away? Yeah, about yep. 18. Yep. yep. I know, like a lot of people in in Tassie, sort of seem to to stay here. Would you recommend to someone at that age to get out and see a little bit of Australia and stuff? Like, did you learn a lot from going away at a young age? And again, you didn't have a lot of safety net either, I suppose, apart no. from your family. I really think you need to. Yep. You can be. You see it a lot, and as a teacher, I see it quite a bit. You know, big fish in a small pond. Yep. Um, and, and you don't really know what's available to you until you get out and not even just go and visit Australia, go and visit the world. Yeah. Like you learn so much from other cultures, from other people, the way they do things. Um, and it, it is really beneficial for you, especially Tasmanians, cause we're pretty sheltered here and, mm-hmm. um, you know, the people you see, you've seen time and time again yep. doing the same old thing. I can go back to Deloraine and probably name most of the people sitting on the street but <laughs> um and they're doing the same thing that they were when I left yep. you know, twenty years ago. But um it really is important to get out and get that bit of experience, whether it be Australia or, or the rest of the world and mm. just open your eyes and, and see how other people and other cultures do do things. Absolutely. There's a lot to learn. Yeah. And and speaking of seeing the world, you then moved on to Japan, didn't you? You went and lived there for a little while. How did that come yeah, about? Yeah, so um, I put in for to go on a volunteer uh, mission for two years over there. Yeah. Um, so I didn't actually get to select. I just um, put in a letter to say that I was ready to go and had the money saved and um, wherever they needed me, I was happy to go. And uh, yeah, it came back with Japan and I was quite shocked. I because I had no idea. I thought Konnichiwa was Chinese. Yep. So that that was the extent that I knew of <laughs> of Japan. And 
yeah, got sent over there and that was a steep learning curve because, you know, uh, in Australia I could talk to whoever I want, say whatever I want, get whatever I want sort of thing, but you go over there and you want to make friends with people and all of a sudden you you can't. you you got no idea how to talk to them. You don't know yep. what they're saying. You don't know. Yeah, it's, it was really a real good experience for me as a young kid to, um, I guess, yeah, one, see another culture, but also... Um, learn how to learn yeah i was gonna say did you have to um, pick up a little bit of the language before you left or did you just sort of wing it when you're over there or? so they had a three-month um training center over in america that i went and went to so i went over there spent three months over there and and that was more along you know what to do in the country uh, they did do language as well but yep. i didn't pick up a whole lot like i could say hello how are you i'm from australia sort of the very basics but um yeah, not enough to really hold a, a conversation. Yep. yep. The Japanese are a beautiful people in that um, they they really are kind, but if you say something wrong, they in English you can sort of make out what someone's trying to say and and understand it for them. Yep. In Japan, if you say something wrong, they'll they'll give you the old head head tilt like, "What did you just say? What are you talking about?" Yeah. yeah. So you know you've you've not really used it in the right context, or yep. you've not said it right. Yep. I had a few experiences where a few nightmares actually. There's a few words that are very similar. Right. One is this will be good. Yeah. <laughs> I still remember it today that yeah I'd, we'd met this lady and she had a young baby and um i think i'd only been out in japan for maybe a month or so and and kawaii is cute but kawaii which is very sim very similar is scary mm. so i tried to say to her your baby's cute but i told her her baby's ugly did she swing a punch at scary. you? <laughs> and she sort of looked at me like, what? And my mate saw it, elbowed me going, what are you doing saying the baby looks scary? Yeah. And uh, yeah, so you have a few little experiences like that. and But you learn from those, I tell you. You Bloody learn hose. real quick. You don't make that mistake again. I don't reckon. No. So, They're pretty ruthless with the language then. Yeah, they are. And and what I found, the best way to learn is talking to kids. Yep. Because kids won't, they won't hold back. Like if you're not saying it right, they'll look at you and go, what are you saying? Yep. So I used to often try and talk to kids a lot because, yeah, they, they give you that honest feedback really quickly. Yep. Um, and they'll tell you if you're saying it right or not. Yeah. So. Yeah, most kids are like that in general life, aren't they? They, they are. They just say it, they, you know, they shoot from the hip, don't they? They do. Yeah. They do. Um, I was going to ask you, you say you went over there on a, on a volunteer mission. What was your actual role over there? What did you go over there to do? Um, so just help out, really. So I had lots of different things that I did. Like I'd done a fair bit of carpentry back here um, throughout my years. So my uncle built the log cabins, you know, the one you see out at Elizabeth Town. So yep. I used to work with him in the summer, summer yep. holidays. And, uh, yeah, so I had a bit of carpentry. So anything that you could help out with stuff like that. But a lot of it was just teaching English. Um, so you'd, you'd have... Uh, they're called air kawa, so like English classes, and we just run them for free. Yeah. Um, so anyone that that wanted to to learn about English or you know come and talk to, because it's not easy for them. There's not many white people over there. Yep. Um, or English speakers. So um, yeah, we used to just teach English and yep. just yeah try and help out wherever you can with people. Yep. So a couple of years in Japan and then you moved home, is that right? Yeah, back to yep. Queensland. Yep. And yep. then you got married around that time. Yeah, that right? got married. So I was a, uh, I actually got a job as a multilingual wildlife education officer at Dreamworld in the zoo. 
Actually sounds like a dream job for people. It was pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah, so learning Japanese was uh, really beneficial for me in life because a lot of my jobs after that came because I could speak Japanese. Right. So, yeah, at Dreamworld, I was, I was down in the um, zoo down there in the Australian Wildlife Experience. And so during the mornings, you'd do all the normal zookeeper stuff and feed the animals and clean their pens and do a few English talks and stuff to, to the public. Yep. And then after lunch, they'd often bring Japanese tours through. And so I'd take them into a separate area and um, do the actual speeches about animals in Japanese and then let them you know, play with the animals and take photos and yep. whatnot. So. so what sort of animals are we talking about? Were you in with lions and snakes and deadly no. things? or so Stuart Steve Irwin? No, no. He, he unfortunately passed away, Not I think just after I got that job or just oh, okay. before around then. But yep. I was trying to be him. I was trying <laughs> to be him. But no, not with the tigers. So they're in a separate area. They're at Tiger Island. And I, I always had an idea that I wanted to go up there. Yep. Um, but it's a lot of time. So... You have to spend about 12 months just um, being near the cats but not in with them. Yep. Um, they have to get used to your scent and you being there before you can even start to associate with them. So, so they don't eat you? Yeah, that's yep. right. Yeah, <laughs> Pretty good strategy. I am allowed to say, but there was a keeper that got nailed while I was there. Wow. Yeah, a couple of teeth in his knee, but yeah. Was, was he an experienced one or a new, newbie? Uh, just plain. So they're, they're playful cats, but... They're still massive. Yeah. And so I don't know whether whether it he did something to annoy it or whether it just thought it was playing and pissed. But, it, yeah, it put him in a bad way. So That's the thing. You've always got to be aware, I suppose, that this thing could kill me or eat me at any at time. At any point. It to. It's not until you get up close with them. I was lucky enough to just spend some time. They had some cubs. Um, and so one of my mates um, used to have them at her house and she was nice enough to let me, you know, play with them a little bit. And... Uh, yeah, even the little ones are just balls of muscle and you yep. can just feel the strength in the cubs. And so I used to think, geez, the, the big ones are, you know, 20 times this and I Snap wouldn't like... Yeah, yeah, yeah. So no, I, I spent a lot of time with the reptiles, so crocs, snakes, um, wombats, koalas, anything Australian. Um, basically, yeah, I was in there with it. Yep. So tell us about meeting your wife then and getting married. How'd that come about? Is she a Queenslander or? Yeah, she's a Queenslander. Yep. Yep, on the Gold Coast. So um, just met through a, a mutual friend. Yep. Yeah, so back in the old MySpace days. Yep. She added me on MySpace <laughs> and. Pre Facebook. Uh, yeah, pre Facebook. <laughs> and I put her in my top eight and then. Uh, and uh, You'd want to hope she's still in your top eight. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Does yeah. she listen to podcasts? Well, hopefully not. <laughs> yeah, no. So, Be careful. Uh, yeah, so I met my wife and uh, we got married up there and, uh, yeah, we she fell pregnant and that's when we decided to... Oh, I actually brought her on a holiday back to Tassie to see some of the extended family and, yep. and she didn't want to leave. Wow. Which was a shock because she's a Gold Coaster through and through and yeah. had a good life up there. I was going to talk to you about that because I knew that you came back and I, I can speak from experience because my wife's a Queenslander and I basically mm-hmm. had to drag her kicking and screaming down here yep. with with the promise that one day we might move back up there again. Yep. So, um, yeah, your wife really just took to the place, did she? Yeah, yeah, and it's probably not like that now. If you asked her, she'd probably want to go back there, yep. I reckon. Yeah, so it was funny because when I... Um, sat down and talked with the parents to let them know that I was, you know, thinking of popping the question. My, her, my mother-in-law, as a joke, said, um, as long as you don't take it back to Tassie. Mm. And uh, 
So I got her on a technicality there because I didn't take her back here. She wanted to come back. Yep. So yep. yeah, I got I got that through. You but... Complete ignorance on that one. Yep. <laughs> um. So when she came back to Tassie, you talked before about your your thirst for learning. You then sort of started a business degree. Is that right? Yeah. Yep. So um, at UTAS, because I hadn't finished year twelve, I knew I wanted to go away volunteering. Yep. Um. I got in as a mature age student, and with my learning Japanese and um, you know being away they, they I guess that went in my favor and I was able to get in and, and did a uh, Bachelor of Business um, so I've, yeah I've got a major in accounting and Japanese yep. which is yeah so you you worked as an accountant for a little while but then you decided to get into teaching yeah so what sort of spurred that on um, I loved accounting um, but there's not much money in it if yep. you're working for someone else right yep and I was lucky enough to work for a good firm here in Devonport and learn a lot um, over the years that I was there. And um, but I, I, I made a friend there as well, another accountant, and we'd always joked about going out on our own um, at some point. And so we we sort of got a little. It started as a joke, and then we got a little bit more serious, yep. and then had a few conversations, and uh, yeah, we decided that that's what we we're going to do. But I I we knew that we couldn't just go straight into a, a business and the two of us be able to draw a wage. And with young families, you know, we it just wasn't possible yep. to, to get the money that you need to survive. So I looked for a, um, a job that might give me a bit of time and I'd done enough uh, tax returns of teachers to know that they get paid pretty well yep. for having <laughs> 12 weeks off a year. At the inside knowledge. Yeah, yep. so uh, I, I sort of put the feelers out there and I had a mate that was a teacher up here at Devonport High and um, and he said, oh, yeah, you know, it's a, a good job. And I went and spent some time with him up at Devonport High just to see if it's something that I'd like. And then I think he mentioned to... Um, must have been Brent Armstead, or he'd spoken to Grant, was working at Devonport at that time, and Brent was at La Trobe. And, yep. um, yeah, so he'd spoken to, to one of them. And anyway, I got a call from La Trobe High School saying, we're looking for a Japanese teacher, and we heard you can speak and you're interested. Yep. So I went down there um, straight away, and, and it was weird because I was able to have that meeting, and I think it was towards the end of the year, and then by the start of the next year, I'd applied to do a post-grad diploma in education because they had a fast track course that you could do online that was only 12 months long yep and i thought geez i can do a year study you know that's not too bad yep to get you know another a little feather in the hat but um yeah so i did that and then brent called me up and said you know you can actually work while you're studying and i said oh i didn't know that at all and he said yeah so as long as you're in your final year which because I'd done three years of business, they counted my diploma of education as my final year. Yep. Um, I was able to get a limited authority to teach. So I went from being an accountant one day to a teacher, an accountant Friday, and then yep. teacher Monday. Yep. And that learning Japanese has just kept opening doors for you, didn't it? Has, it? It's yeah. funny how things work out. It is. It? it is. Like it, it was really hard to do um, going over there and making that decision to go over there, and, um, and learning was hell. But it's just paid dividends. Yep. Yeah. So I, as I said, I, I was account one day and then started teaching, and then uh, yeah, it was only three weeks or four weeks, maybe five weeks that I was at the Trove High and I had a bit of an accident. Yep. 
Yeah. So tell us about your accident. Obviously, that's a pretty big turning point in your life. What happened? Yeah. So uh, I I just started at at La Trobe High, and uh, I was trying to get to know the kids. And a, a staff a students game of basketball came up, and I thought, here we go. You know, I played a bit enough basketball yep. that I'll go all right here <laughs> and get to show them a few skills and that I I know what I'm doing. But yep. yeah, we got out there and um, we got the tip, and I remember going down top of the key, pulled up, hit a shot straight up. And I ran back to about halfway line, and they tried an outlet pass. I didn't know. I thought I was the furthest back, but there must have been someone else behind me that they were passing to. And we've both gone up for the ball, and um, yeah, I just came down unbalanced, and uh, and I heard a couple of cracks as I fell, but I thought, I oh, you know, I'm not in any pain, so I'm all right. And I had the ball, and I'm pretty sure I passed to Brent. Um, and he went off and then I went to stand up and sort of stumbled forward. I had no toes on the right hand side. So right. my, my foot had dislocated out, um, 90 degrees to the right. Shit. Um, yeah. So yep. I sat down again or fell down and called one of the other teachers over that was umpiring and just, he said, what's the matter? And I said, I oh, have a look at my foot. So nobody else had noticed at this stage? No, nah, I don't think so. Yep. No, nah, because I, I hadn't screamed or anything. I was in zero pain. Yep. Um, so they wouldn't have known. Um, but yeah, so so Dan Carafillis was the umpire, and I still remember his face. He looked at it and went, oh, and yep. just blew the whistle and said everyone out. And, yep. and the kids were really good. They sort of just filed out really quick. That's how I remember it. It might yep. have been a bit different. But I know some of them must have seen it as they were going out because I remember them saying, I oh, look at his foot. Yep. Um, but I tried to just sort of play it off as if it was nothing so that it didn't cause too much trouble. But yeah. So what happened sort of after that then? Obviously, you had to go to hospital then. And- yeah, so I was lucky. The, the ambulance came pretty quickly. Yep. Um, and they took me up to Bernie. So... I wasn't really any pain. I was just talking. Um, I remember being a little bit stressed knowing that, you know, there's been a fracture and I'd never broken a bone before in all the days that I'd done sport. So yeah. so it was just the angle that you landed on just... Yeah, so I, I think, yeah, it's really hard to know what sort of happened. I think I caught my toes and it's obviously had enough weight to push my foot out to the side and then I landed. Right. Because later on they found it, it was a bit more of a crush injury than it was a dislocation. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, so they, they think that's what sort of happened, but it's hard to know because it happened so quick. Yep. Um, but, yeah, I, I wasn't in any pain. I remember laying there and a good mate of mine, Devin Cullis, was... He was there beside me. He goes, oh, do you want me to call your wife? And I said, yeah, just tell her I'm going to be at the hospital and won't be home tonight. Yep. And and he's a he's a legend of a bloke, but he sometimes gets a bit nervous. So he's trying to, he's called my wife, Kayla, and he's like, oh, um, um, it's it's Brett. <laughs> and I can hear Kayla on the other side going, Devin, what's wrong? Yeah. What's wrong? Is he alive? And he was trying to get out. I said, Dev, give it to you, mate. So <laughs> I talked to her and just said, you know, throw some pajamas and a charger for my phone and whatnot in a bag and um don't worry about coming up tonight you know they'll they'll operate either tomorrow or whatever we'll, we'll find out so you went to lonnie did you lonnie no nah, up to bernie, bernie okay. yeah yep. up to bernie so yep. yeah wasn't it until i got to about alveston it really started kicking in the pain yep and it came in hard so you're just in shock maybe before yeah that, a bit of adrenaline yep yeah they um they tapped me with morphine i think um straight up they didn't bother with anything else they said yeah you're going to be in a fair bit of pain 
Yeah. Um, I just remember being filthy because I had these brand new shoes and they cut the laces out of them. Yeah. I wasn't real happy with that, but <laughs> the, one of the paramedics was actually our neighbour. I didn't know her all that well, but I knew, you know, we knew each other enough to talk, and so we had a good chat going up to the hospital. And yeah, I got to about Olvi and almost passed out because I was I was looking at my foot the whole time. Yep. just turned sideways. And so they couldn't move it. Obviously, they had to nah, keep it in the same yeah, position. Yeah, keep yep. it in the same position. So yeah, she she sort of said, "Oh, sorry," and put a towel over it and. And then she said, I can't really give you any more pain relief because you'll be in burning in 10, 15 minutes and they'll need you, you know, pretty coherent so you can listen to what they say and, and yep. make some decisions. So, um, yeah, I sort of, it, it hurt a fair bit from Olvi up to Bernie and then they got me into um, emergency and there was an American doctor came over and he was chatting away and and I said, yeah, look, I'm in a fair bit of pain. He, they they messed around and tried to get a um some gas for me then the happy gas and got a bottle over and that was empty i was sitting there going it's not doing good start yeah (laughs) so no they got a full one and then i passed out actually because i'd never had any pain relief whatsoever like i barely took panadol yep um so yeah they put that on me and and uh yeah i i passed out and he woke me up and said oh look i need you to look that way and suck really hard on this gas and i said what for and he goes i can't tell you just look look away and and he take a big couple of deep breaths on that gas and anyway i put it in my mouth and watched him and he grabbed my foot and put it back into place and it was painful i reckon that was horrible and uh the noise i can still hear it now and i just remember just screaming but not taking my mouth off the mouthpiece with that had the the gas running in it and yep. yeah I was hitting it hard and passed out again but yeah they had to put it back into place so that they could go and x-ray it and see what they were dealing with How scary is it in this day and age how much we rely on modern technology it's not till your phone dies or the Wi-Fi or power goes off that you realise you'd be lost without it well recently my phone decided in its old age to die and stop charging and on a weekend no less so what do you do? Rather than waiting to speak to the network providers or retail outlets, which can be painful within itself, give Brad or Katie a call at Greenies Apple Repairs. That's what I did, and they had my old phone as good as new in hours. Greenies take care of iPhones, iPods, iPads, and pretty much everything else, and they won't cost you an arm and a leg. So next time you're stuck back in the dark ages with no technology, contact Greenies Apple Repairs on 0401 229 220 or you can contact them at www.greeniesrepairs.com.au or find them on Facebook. Now just to get onto this busted screen. So obviously had to have an operation. Did they put like a pin in it or a plate or something to start off with? Or? Yeah. So, so Sorry, what had you actually broken? Was it your ankle or was it more your... Yeah, ankle. Yeah. So for a dislocation, so more often than not, when you dislocate a foot, it'll go in. Right. Mine went out. Yep. So in order for it to do that, you have to fracture the fibula yep. on the outside. So the ones, the real gruesome ones, like you see it in the UFC and that when they kick shins together and it just sort of hangs, yeah. like Conor McGregor sort of one, yep. um, they're a lot better because it's a clean break through both bones. Whereas mine, um, I spiral fractured the fibula, but as it rotated, um, there was a crush injury inside the actual ankle joint. So the bottom of the tibia and the top of the talus right in the ankle joint actually fractured as well. Right. Um, and, yeah, so I had surgery the next day. Um, they couldn't 
get me in that night. Um, the orthopedic surgeon came in and saw me and said, look, we're even struggling to get your bed up on the ward. So, um, yeah, I had surgery the next day and they, all they did was plated the fibula. Right. Um, which for whatever reason, I don't know why they didn't inspect a bit more, but I was there for a couple of days and then they discharged me and I was lucky enough that one of the young registrars came and discharged me and he said, listen, um, if I'm not here when you, your six weeks is up with your cast, you need to let them know that it wasn't just the fibula, that there was actually a little bit of breakage um, to the tibia. Right. And it, it, it rung in my head. I was like, that's weird. He said they didn't pin it. They didn't do anything with it. They just left it. Yep. And I was like, mm, that doesn't sound right. But I was high as a kite on who knows what. And yep. But I just remember that. Um, yeah, him saying that. And and mum being a nurse, I called her once I got in the car and said, does that sound right, mum? Or what? And she said, nah, it doesn't sound real right at all. But anyway, see how you go. So, But yeah, after six weeks, I started the rehab. And I remember just... I, they took the cast off and I had to walk from the, the plaster room over to the consulting room and I couldn't put weight on it. Yep. Like it just felt like I had a knife in my ankle. Yep. And so I hobbled over there, like well, hopped pretty much. And um, I remember the registrar sort of giving me a distinct look because it was a different one to the one that I saw originally. And she sort of said, what are you doing that for? And I said, oh, it, it's hurting. She goes, oh, people play football on what you've had, so... Um, you... She's basically telling you to harden up. Exactly. Right. Yeah, workers' comp. As soon as your workers' uh, comp, they assume... Well, that was my take on it. She assumed that I was faking for whatever reason. Right. But, yeah, turned out. So I went home and I said to mum, I was a bit upset because i got a pretty high pain tolerance. Mm-hmm. I said, mum, I can't even put weight on this. Like, it's it's a nightmare. And she said, you need to get in contact with that registrar. And I, I I found his name on a bit of paper somewhere and ended up calling up the hospital and said, look, is this registrar around anywhere? And they said, yeah, he's, he's there. And I ended up getting hold of him. And he said, oh, I asked him to put me on your case. He said, no, you, you can't be walking on it yet. Like, there's reason for your pain because there's a few broken bones and whatnot there yep. that haven't been dealt with and... Yeah, so that sort of... I lost my confidence in the public system a bit after that, unfortunately. Yeah. And I uh, got referred through to a private surgeon in Launceston. Yeah, he did a scan and straight away said... Oh, I'd actually been back to work full-time before that. Yep. Um, just on crutches or... No, I was no? just gritting it out, thinking, okay. oh, well, this is wow. how it's supposed to be, so we'll yep. see how we go. But it felt like I was walking on glass. Yeah. Like, it was that painful, but I thought, oh, well, you know, people have this, so, you know grit your teeth and bear it and yep. eventually it'll come good but it just never came good and they yep. yeah they remember the private surgeon did a scan and said no you got to get off this we we've got to operate and it wasn't long after that he went in and he said it was just bone shards all through the ankle yep um which was unfortunate because that was the beginning of the end um because... so was it 10 surgeries that you had or 10 times yeah, over for the ankle yeah yep. so this was prior to deciding to get it amputated yep. Yep. so yeah, you tried so... and tried and tried i tried tried everything but what had happened was because there was all the bone shards in the ankle joint me walking on them sheared all the cartilage and as soon as you lose cartilage like your ankle is your largest weight bearing joint um with the least amount of muscle support um and 
yeah, so as soon as you, you do that cartilage in, yeah, you're in a bit of strife. So yep. I had a couple of surgeries down here in um, with, yeah, private surgeon in Launceston and he's tried and still was having troubles with it and he ended up putting me into what they call an honorary clinic where they bring all the orthopedic surgeons together. So I think there was about 10 of them that came in and looked at my scans, looked at me and asked questions and it's like a bit of an interrogation sort of thing. And yep. um, Professor Inoda was there as well. And so I, I had all the orthopedic surgeons given their view, like they'll talk about it and, you know, they'll, they argue back and forth and it's really awkward um, process to be a part of. But anyway, yep. they ended up going and looking at the scan and I remember Professor Inoda walked in and they all sort of parted and he went up to me scan and said, you know, what have you done with this? And this, my surgeon said, oh, I was going to graft it, but I went in and it had a bit of matter in it. So I left it and yeah, professor, I noticed said, well, you should have because that's the problem. Yeah. Um, so yeah, they did a bone graft then and that didn't go real well. And in the end, I squared the surgeon up in Launceston and said, are you out of your depth? Like, tell me, cause I, I need to know, you know, I've got young family and, got a job I want to get back to and you know if if you're out of your depth it's nothing against you but just let me know so I can go and find someone that can help me yeah yeah so he to his credit said yeah you might want to see an ankle specialist so um I went and saw an ankle specialist in Melbourne and he sort of said yeah it's not good yep so yeah I had a, a another five surgeries with him um and he's he's one of the top surgeons going around you know does a lot of afl players and stuff and um yeah so he tried and tried and tried did everything he could uh, he ended up towards the end fusing it so pulled all the cartilage out shaves the bone back on on both the talus and the tibia and put screws through it so it can't move so it yep. becomes one bone yep um that fell apart um so he did it again and still because that joint had now been fused, all the the navicular joint and all the other little joints in the um, in the ankle started playing up. So he then uh, decided to do a triple fusion as well. So all four joints in the ankle were fused together by screws. I had I don't know, I think it was close to fifteen screws and plates um, going through my ankle everywhere, and it just wouldn't move. Yep. It was just locked. Yeah, and uh, yeah, it started coming up part again and was painful and just wasn't working so yeah we had the pretty tough conversation to say right oh let's get rid of it so just can you just take us back to your mindset through that stage though were you still hopeful that it was going to come right or was there a time when you thought this is probably not going to end well um i think early on i think it might have even been the surgeon in launceston whether he was joking or not he sort of said you know this is not going to end well whether it you know at the moment he said i Oh, that's what he said. He said, I'm not here to fix. I'm here to prolong. Yep. Which sort of scared me a little bit. I'd, I'd thought, you know, I'm healthy, I'm fit, I'm young, it'll, it'll heal. Um, but he sort of, yeah, went the other way and said, nah, it's bad enough that it's going to cause you trouble at some point. Right. Um, and I'm just here to push that back, that date back as far as possible. So yep. I sort of knew that it wasn't good. And mum, um, yeah, being a a nurse was able to sort of guide me through everything and and i i did my due diligence and did a fair bit of research on 
people that had had injuries similar to mine and knew that it didn't end real well. Yeah. Um, so it, it was extremely tough um, going back to your question because um, every time I'd have a surgery, so over, what was it, five years, I'd had a surgery every six months. Yep. And these are major surgeries, not, um, you know, I had little things in between, but I only count the, the big general anesthetics and yep. ones that you have to be off your leg for six, eight weeks. And, uh, you know, you'd, you'd go into a surgery and they'd say, this is what we're going to do, it's going to fix it. And you'd come out of it and you'd try and be optimistic and then bang, you know, you'd go back for a review and they'd say, nah, sorry, it didn't work. This is what we're going to do. And it just, it was just punch after punch just felt like my nose was just above water all the time and yep. you kept getting pushed under every time you thought you were sort of making some headway so yeah and along with that you've got the the pain that you're constantly in yeah um you know they're hard things to deal with it, it's hard enough to deal with that sort of experience in your life um without having constant pain which affects your sleep which affects your mood and yeah i'd never been a depressed person ever in my life um, I, I had the best childhood and I used to often think, you know, depression's not real. You know, people just need to be happier and, you know, make themselves happy. And it wasn't until I got into that situation myself that I realized, realized it is a real thing. And, yep. um, so you felt like you were depressed through that time? Yeah, so I, I, I tried to convince myself I wasn't. Um, but there was a few times where I acted out of my character and blew up. Um, at people, yeah. Um, I got a call from John the Jong psychologist saying, "Hey, you, know, you probably need to come in and have a chat." Yep. So, um, at the time, I thought, "Nah, I was pretty prideful." You yep. know, I'd always been someone that fixed my own problems, done whatever I wanted to do, achieve my own goals, sort of things. And to think that, you know, oh, someone was thinking that I was weak and couldn't fix my own problems, sort of, you know, dented the pride a little bit. Yeah. And that's, that's such a typical thing these days, isn't it, to think that it's weak it to reach out for help? It really help? is. It really is. And, and that's one of the reasons why I like doing this is because I was one of those people. Um, and it's only now that I've been through the experience that I've had that I know it's not weakness at all. Um, and I can't thank John DeJong enough. Um, I went in there. He just he was like a mate. I'd go in and I'd talk to him and, um, you know, and, and often just talking to him. And, you know, people talk to their wives and that, but you, you don't want to burden them. They're in it as well. So yeah. offloading onto them often isn't the best thing you can do, but having someone that's totally separate from the matter that, that gets an outside perspective, but he's also a professional in dealing with yeah. that stuff um, was he just gave me all the tools and resources that I needed to be able to get me through those really tough days because there were some dark days. There yeah. were some very dark days where... I wasn't that kind of person to be down and, you know, want to end it. But it was the only way I could see of getting out of the situation I was in. Yep. And, uh, yeah, so going to him and, and talking to him about that and, you know, how these, you know, feelings would come up in me every now and then, he'd, he'd say to me, you know, and I, I felt bad because I did have the perfect upbringing. I didn't have a lot of the trauma that a lot of people out there do have. I was lucky awesome parents awesome family you know awesome friends was you know pretty gifted at what i wanted to do so I, you know i had the perfect upbringing so um i felt bad being in there but he said i remember him saying it to me one day he goes you're not a depressed person 
And I said, oh, good, you know, because everyone's labeling me as that. Um, and he said, no, you're not depressed at all. It's what we call situational depression. Yep. So the situation that you're in at the moment, you could put 99.9% of the population in it and they're going to react the same way you are. They're going to have, they're going to be down. Um, and, and that's what happened. I, I, you know, I was in a, in a real bind in that I couldn't do what I'd always done. I couldn't, I couldn't, um, solve my own problems. There was all these out, outside, um, external factors that were really influencing everything that was going on around me. Felt out of control. And I felt out of control, which was the first time in my life that had happened. Yep. Um, and I'd always been a really happy, friendly, social person. And I noticed that I wasn't enjoying being out because people just want to talk about your injury and, and they'd give me pity, which I'd didn't like either and you know i just was quite yeah i found that i'd started to exclude myself from things which that adds to it like you you end up being worse off by doing that yeah um but yeah so i i'm i'm a i'm really grateful that you know they did end up pushing me in to see psychologists and get that help because it is what helped me right through and um later on once the amputation came along um all that that I'd learnt from John and and how to deal with things really came into play because you know it was a pretty tough time but mm. because I'd learnt so much from him and um, yeah and he'd helped me so much I'd I'd sort of learnt what I needed to do to be able to get through that experience because yep. that was pretty tough as well yeah and you mentioned family there before so um, how many kids have you got three yep so yep. what how was it through that time for them did you find have you spoken to them since and how they sort of dealt with things yeah so um my wife's incredible i I really struggle to talk about it because it makes me quite emotional but um my parents my wife that they are the other ones that got me through yep um but you know we're down here most of our family's in queensland i've only got one brother that's here and and he's got a young family himself and they both work so they were quite busy and, you know, we, we didn't want to burden them with what was going on. But um, so my wife bore the brunt of most of what I was going through. The ups know. and downs. Yep. yep. And so not only was I out of being able to help, but, um, you know, they're very, we've got very active kids and she'd, she'd have to work. Once she saw that I was injured and wasn't going real well, she decided oh, I better go get a, educate myself and get myself a job because at some point he might not be able to work and and she sort of took that initiative without saying it to me i knew what she was doing and so she was studying and um working at the same time as running the three kids around and and keeping life as normal as possible for them yep um so yeah and we're really lucky that tasmania is full of um, wonderful people that that do want to help and we we had some awesome friends that we sort of got to know through um, kids friends and, and through the school and stuff and they've, they've all been massive in in helping us through that yep um, yeah but it, it was tough on the kids really tough on the kids yep could they understand why you couldn't you know play basketball with them and run around with them and that sort of thing or? Um, they were very kind in not making me feel guilty yep I think they knew yep um, but I also was a bit stubborn and tried to 
do as much as I could. So yep. I, I made uh, made sure that they didn't miss out to the fullest. Like yep. I, I tried to do as as best I could. Um, and yeah, but I, I remember right before once the this um, amputation had been decided and the date got set. I um I think it might have been John. I'm not sure who it was. Whether it was one or someone that I trusted gave me a bit of advice and said you really need to to sit down with the kids and have a good conversation with them so that they know um, that you're happy with the decision and that you know you're ready to go forward and that hopefully the idea of this surgery is that down down once you recover and everything you'll be in a lot better position. Um, so we we're ocean going family so I remember taking them down um down to Hawley there and and we went out on a one of the rocks in the water and just had a conversation um I just sort of said to him look I'm an open book if you've got any questions any concerns I want to hear them if you're upset that this is happening I want to hear it and uh, my son's got a he's the middle child he's got a really big heart but he also shoots from the hip yep um and so he started firing questions away and and the youngest was was pretty young at the time, but she sort of asked a few questions. The oldest is a bit of a hard one, so she was pacing backwards and forth and didn't like it and yep. didn't want to talk, didn't want to be emotional. But eventually, she sat down and we had a chat and a hug and cried it out. And I just let them know that you know it's tough, but we're tougher. Yeah, um, we'll get through it. And uh, eventually, you know, the the good will come come from this and. Um, but I just needed them to be strong for, and be well behaved for myself and my wife, and yep. um, and they were really, really good through the whole process. Because um, yeah, it ended up being, you know, I'd been told that I'd probably only be away for six weeks at max in Melbourne. Yeah, it ended up being quite a bit longer than you were that there for a while. Yeah, which yeah. we'll get into in a sec. But just yeah. take us back to the point though, where you did decide that you were gonna go ahead with the amputation were you were you ready for it or was it something that was a bit of a shock still to your system when they suggested it or um once i had my ankle fused i didn't like it um it was really restrictive and i couldn't run i couldn't do a lot of things i wanted to do um so i i made the decision in my own self that i think i'd probably prefer amputation to fusion and I've done a fair bit of research and there was quite a few people that had come to that decision as well and had pretty good outcomes so um, I, I'd i made that decision myself that I would prefer uh, to be an amputee rather than have a fused ankle yep. um, because it wasn't you know I felt like I was disabled with the fused ankle even though I wasn't classed as disabled but as soon as I became disabled i felt like i was actually abled yep and started to get back some of the life that um i wanted to live it's interesting that you say that you know we spoke before we started recording about the the better off dad um podcast with with peter brown yeah that was the one key quote that i took out of that is he said that his um amputation rather than disabling him actually enabled him yeah and i think that's just that's just the, the most brilliant attitude to have yeah yeah and um yeah like I was lucky enough because I sat in rehab for such a long time. You see people come through that have different attitudes and you see where it leads them. And so I'm, I'm very lucky in that. And 
they're often in a different situation. There's different types of amputations that come along. Some get are lucky like me that get to choose it and know what's going on. Yep. There's others that wake up, have a car accident. When they wake up from the car accident, they uh, you know they've lost their legs. So that's obviously a lot traumatic and a lot harder to come to, to grips with an amputation. Whereas, yeah, mine I saw it as a positive. Yep. and I had to I, I I remember putting a Facebook post out because it, it sort of happened real quickly um, it went from you know just having this surgery and doing recovery and whatever to all of a sudden there was a fair bit of a fight with workers with the Department of Education to actually get the approval um, and so there was a bit of a legal battle there and eventually bang it, it all came through and it was like two weeks later the date was set um, so I remember talking to Kayla about, oh, how do I go about this? I don't want to have to go and tell everyone individually. I think I might just chuck it up on Facebook and then just say, look, this is what it is. Um, don't feel bad for me because I'm actually really excited about it and tried to really... I, I honestly was excited for it because I saw it as an opportunity of me getting my life back and yep. I sort of put that in words, I think, in the post. And a lot of people came and spoke to me and said, you know, it just doesn't make sense that yeah. you so excited and positive about this this whole situation but i suppose a lot of them hadn't been through your journey though had they no they yeah. hadn't seen the da- the bad days i'm pretty clever at um putting a smile on my face and yeah. and hiding the hard parts away but yeah so i sort of sort of um yeah had to to let that known that yeah, i really was excited for it because it was going to open a lot of doors for me and get me back to what to what i used to be yeah um, this is a random question, but again, listening to, to um, Peter Brown's interview, he actually watched the surgery. Yeah, yeah. Did you do that or did he's, you get knocked he's out? Up. He is. He's messed up. <laughs> so he had his two days before me. Yeah. Yeah. So he was in Sydney. Um, I was in Melbourne. Uh, nah, I said, knock me out. No, nah, me too. I don't want to see that. Yeah. <laughs> the one, I, I had a couple of, so the surgeon came and spoke to me and he said, have you got any last questions? And I said, oh, I'd love a screw out of my ankle just as a memento. And yep. he said, can't do it. Brownie wanted to keep his foot. He had it. Yeah. He took a photo with it. <laughs> a madman. He showed me and I nearly vomited. <laughs> yeah, no, nah, he's a, he's a different beast that yeah. I didn't know, but while I was waiting in the room outside theater in the prep room, um, they said to me, oh, because I started having a conversation with the surgeon. He said, no, you can't, you can't have it. And I sort of thought, oh, how do you cut it off? And he said to me, oh, I thought, you know, because you go in there and there's Makita's and all that on the wall. But I thought, you know, they've got a chainsaw and they're just going <laughs> to chop through it. But no, there's a little wire that's got some fine teeth on it that they saw back and forth. But yeah, long story short, I, I sort of said to him, what do you do with it? Like, I know I'm going to get asked this question. So what what actually happens with it? And he said, "Oh, yours will get burnt, but you could have donated it to to the uni for the med students." And I said, "Well, let's do that. Mm. Like, I'd rather someone get some benefit out of it." But the paperwork, he said, we we'd be here for hours, and unfortunately, we don't have hours. You've only got about ten minutes. I'm going to knock you out. So, yep. yeah, no, it was a, an interesting experience. I don't know how you'd stay awake because even just going into the theatre is freaky enough as it is no, cold yeah. and yeah metal and just smells like death in yep. there so do you remember when you woke up the first time you saw that it was gone yeah weird experience um so i woke up and i could still feel my foot 100 percent. i yep. could feel the sheet on the on the top of my toes i could feel my heel in the mattress and i actually <laughs> called the nurse over and said hey what happened why didn't they didn't take it off why didn't they take it 
And she's looking at me all funny and she goes, what are you talking about? And I said, well, why didn't, I was supposed to have an invitation. Why didn't they take me leave? And she said, you haven't looked, have you? And I looked down and I could see that the, it wasn't there. And I, I just was mind blown. But I, I, I don't know. I'm guessing that the brain was still feeling what was happening on the left side and just went, oh, well, that's how it always is on the right side and was playing that game. But yeah, it was a really weird sensation being able to, feel my foot I could move it um yeah it was just it was just a surreal experience yeah and you feel like you're you're batty telling people but um yeah it is it's it's a real thing you can just the brain has had that like the nerves are still there the mapping in your brain's still there so it, it all seems to think it's all still there yeah you did as you say you did end up spending you thought you were going to be there for a couple of days. You ended up in Melbourne for six months. Yeah. Yeah, so what yeah. happened? So um, coming out of the surgery, so I had to use a vascular surgeon, which was something that the Department of Education decided on, which was a bit weird. Um, I'd had an orthopedic surgeon over there that was willing to do it and had um, a lot of experience with it, but they chose this, that I had to have a vascular surgeon. I don't know whether they got some advice from... A legal team or something that that um, decided that, but so I had to shop round really quickly to find this vascular surgeon that was happy to cut my leg off. Um, anyway, I got a good one from Ta- he was he was in Melbourne, but he was originally from Georgetown, um, Doctor Wu, and he did a, a great job. And but I remember him, I looking down and it was just really really swollen, like massively, and he said to me, "I'm used to doing." Um, diabetic patients or circulation issues and so I've never really had someone like you that had a really high blood flow Um, and so unfortunately because I had such a high blood flow it filled the stump up really big and that put stress on the on the suture line where all the stitches were yep um, and caused a a few issues Um, and yeah eventually I got because um I don't know how it came about, but, you know, they had to change because it didn't heal real well. Um, there was a lot of exposure, and I, I ended up um, with an infection inside um, the stump. So it took – it just wouldn't heal. You know, it was falling apart, and, yeah, eventually um, after about six months, they let me come home, but it still hadn't healed fully. Yep. Yeah, so I, I eventually – they tried and tried. They'd swabbed the area, and nothing would come up. Um, but eventually they did an MRI and they could see in the bone that it was just lit up. So I had, you know, some, um, infection inside the bone, um, which, yeah, they obviously, I, I ended up getting, um, referred to a, a different team at the Alfred that deal with, um, amputees and trauma patients over there. And, uh, they were incredible. So they, they whisked me over and had a look at it and said, yeah, look, you're going to have a rough week. We're going to do three, four surgeries. Like, we'll, we'll cut it out. We'll test it, um, see how it goes, and we'll keep doing that until we get a um, negative, uh, that there's no bugs inside the samples that we, we cut out. And So that was pretty. That was really rough. That was yeah. probably the hardest part. You would have been thinking, oh, Jesus, I've I've finally made this decision and got this amputation done and I'm still here. Like, was 
was that sort of mentally very hard to take as well? Because you you would have thought, right, my life's about to start again now. And I'd done six months of rehab, um, you know, every day, two sessions a day, you know, really working hard in the gym and, and yeah, worked hard and finally got the leg and then it was all taken off me again and sort of back to square one. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that was a hard couple of weeks and, and I'd, I'd, yeah, had a fair bit of pain associated with it and that having the surgeries again, that sort of flared it all back up and yeah. Yeah, it was a bit of a nightmare week um, or two weeks over in Melbourne, those surgeries. This episode of the pod would not be possible without the support of Sam and the team at Infinite Joinery and Design. If you're like me and normally need these guys to come in after you stuff up your latest home renovation, here's an idea. Get them in first and save the hassle. Specialising in new home joinery fit-outs, renovations, kitchens, laundries, wardrobes, vanities and solid timber work and project management, Infinite have 3D design software and Sam alone has over 20 years experience in joinery and project management. He knows his stuff. Located at 6 Bay Drive, Coiba, or you can find them on Facebook and Instagram or contact Sam at 0429 291 008 or you can email sam at infinitejoineryanddesign.com. So don't be like me, get the experts in first and save yourself some money and a fierce dressing down from the better half. You talked there before about um, phantom um, sensations, feeling like your foot was there. You also got phantom limb pain. Yeah. So there was actually pain there, but it wasn't actually there. Can you explain that to us? I can very well. I've had quite a bit of experience with this one. Yeah. So um, when I woke up after the amputation initially... um, They'd put a nerve block in, so I couldn't feel anything. And I thought, oh, you know, I'm doing well. And they'd whisk me back up to the ward. And I got on Facebook, and I think my wife had me on Facebook Live or something. So I'm talking to everyone, going, yeah, I'm good. Yep. I'm all good. You know, everything's going well. And cracking a few jokes and, and ordering lunch and whatever. And then got to about 6 o'clock at night, and that nerve block wore off, and it hit me like a truck. It just felt like... It's hard to describe, but it felt like I had someone driving over my foot, but my foot was in a fire at the same time. Shit. And there was absolutely nothing they could do. So they were jabbing me. I ended up passing out. It was that bad. So my heart rate shot through the roof. Blood pressure shot through the roof. Um, I I just yeah laid back sweating and yeah tears. Like I was biting. I ended up drawing blood on my hand. I was biting my hand that hard. Um and they tried everything so i already had a because it's a pretty large surgery they already had me on um a cocktail of of painkillers and and they just weren't cutting the mustard so they ended up i thought it was only a little while but i actually passed out so um from six until about one they tried all these different things and nothing worked um so they ended up calling the anaesthetist back in like an emergency call out and she came in and um, gave me another nerve block and said, look, it's one o'clock in the morning. We'll we'll see what we can do in the morning. We'll see how you go the rest of the night. Yep. So that lasted a few more hours. And then in the morning, I was it was just a nightmare again. It yep. just came back fierce. Is this common? Did they say that it happens to a lot of amputees? It, it does, but yep. different severities. Yep. Um, because uh, the sort of conclusion, they don't know a whole lot about it. Um, the conclusion that she drew was that I'd had, I think at that point, six years of 
um, ankle pain, like constant severe ankle pain. Yep. So those nerves were just constantly sending pain signals. Um, so she said as soon as we've cut them, they've gone, oh, what's going on here? It must be painful and just gone crazy. Um, and that's what she sort of put it down to was like I was a prime suspect for it to happen because I'd had that that long history of, of pain in that area. Yep. Um, but yeah, they they sort of weren't prepared for the severity that it was. Mm. Um, neither was I. Yep. Like I, I'd not felt anything like it, but it was the worst pain that I'd had times 600. Shit. Yeah, yeah, so I, I let her, I feel bad about it, but I let a few nurses have it. Yeah. Because they'd keep asking these dumb questions and I wasn't real. Usually I'm a pretty nice guy, but yep. in that situation, I uh, I remember my wife saying, hey, tone it down. Yep. Don't so know. did they get to the bottom of it? Like the pain eventually went away or? No, so they they ended up in, in that immediate recovery stage, they ended up whisking me down to theatre and putting an epidural in. Um, so that numbs you from the hips down, um, but even that didn't work, and it it the pain would still come through. Yeah. Um. So and I think it was like twenty four hours later that they'd every two hours they put what they call a bolus down. So they'd they'd inject a syringe full of drugs, like a cocktail of them, to really um, make sure that it's it's doing its job, and you have it i'd be all right there was one nurse in particular that was awesome she knew so the one nurse got all that information off the anaesthetist but then the anaesthetist goes away yeah and in handover sometimes things get missed Mm. and you'd get these nurses coming in and they'd be like oh you know you you're doing okay i don't think you need a bolus now and like well just wait and see Mm. and then sure enough bang so i was in and out of these real bad pain episodes um and the anaesthetist ended up getting called in three times and she ended up really giving the nurses a serve and saying, look, this guy is in... I've, I've written what needs to happen. It needs to happen. Mm. Um, yeah, so the, it was a bit of a bit of a nightmare. But over time, um, they, they, they used different medications to sort of lessen the, or calm the nerves down. So they, they often use epileptic medications that... that have resulted in oh that they've found has worked quite well for amputees in in toning it down so over time it it lessened the severity so i could get off all the real hard stuff but it was still a nightmare yep to the point that i couldn't sleep but it was enough that they could send me off to rehab which is what i really wanted to do yeah um because there's uh, i did a fair bit of research and sitting in a hospital bed is the worst thing you can do because when your mind's sitting there with not a lot to do, um, that pain just starts to go crazy. So even when I start to talk about it now, my foot will start tingling. Yep. Um, so yeah, getting in, I knew rehab would be the best thing for me. Um, so I went over there finally and um, was able to get in the gym and, you know, talk to people and get in a wheelchair and start to just, you know, start my recovery. Yep. And that sort of helped a little bit, but it was still... I still had times where it was just an absolute nightmare at rehab. Yep. I still have bad nights. Like, weather can change it. If you have bad sleep, it can come back. Like, it, yep. it's, it's never 100% gone. But it never fully goes away. Yeah, we sort of manage it a lot better now, which is which is good. Yep. Um, so, tell us about life now. 
And does it take a while to get used to using the, the prosthetic? Yeah, it did. Um, just weird things like... Because you can still feel your foot. You think your foot's there. So sometimes you'd get up and go to walk and it's not there. Or, yep. you know, just weird things like that. But um, I was lucky. So a lot of people that do become amputees, as I said before, they're, they're usually elderly people that have got diabetes and have issues that way. Yep. Or they've just been through a massive trauma incident, whether it be falling off a roof or being hit in a bad car accident. So... They've got a lot of complications that, that, you know, the walking side of things becomes even harder. Um, for me, I was fit everywhere else and strong everywhere else. So it was just a matter of getting the the wound healed and then I was ready to go. So I think there's a video of me like three days after having my leg kicking the footy. Yep. Um, which they thought was pretty crazy, but... I really was just ready to go and you know I put in the work prior to the surgery to make sure I was I was fit and strong so knowing that the the better I went into it the better I was going to come out of it yep um so it, it wasn't too hard and it, it it yeah it felt natural pretty quick um because you do just feel like it's your foot yep which is weird to say but you you really do um but I guess it's more the keeping everything running correctly that you've got to get around maintenance type yeah stuff. so yep. making sure that you're checking the leg all the time making sure there's no rub spots or you know stuff like that making sure all your equipment's um you know up to standard because one thing not being right can cause you a bit of trouble yeah yeah which yep. i learned just recently but yeah yeah and you say about you know kicking the footy you've got yourself pretty active again haven't you you've you're playing basketball again now? Is yeah, that... yeah. So it was a big goal of mine because I lost my leg to basketball. <laughs> I thought I'm going to get back and play. Yeah. Like, yeah. I'm. Uh, I was pretty keen on on that being a goal, and so yeah, I've been back playing. I got some you know family that I grew up with and friends that we play a bit out at Portsrail. Yep. At the stadium out there, which is good and keeps me active. And yep. Um, they're good in that they they take it easy on me, but they don't. Yep. Sort of thing, which is what you need. I get the feeling that, yeah, you wouldn't want them to take it easy on you. No. Test yourself to the max. No, you don't want any... I hate people holding the door for me. It annoys me. But, um, yeah, you don't want them... But you also don't want them to injure you because it can mean... Like, if I injure my left leg, I'm out. In a bit of strife. Yeah. yeah. So they've got the balance pretty right then. Yeah, yeah. So, no, they're they're good. Very good. And look after me. Yep. Yeah. And um, I think I saw a picture of you... Um, you're on a trampoline or something doing somersaults or something like that. So obviously, you know, there's there's no end to what you can do. No, or... I'm pretty, what do you say, not arrogant, but I don't like thinking that I can't do something. Yep. You're pig-headed. Yeah, pig-headed. Yep. I really am. And I, my son was doing backflips and I said, yeah, I used to be able to do them. And he said, you can't now. And I said, well, stuff you. I'm about to be. <laughs> and I actually, I reckon I broke my other toe. I broke my big toe doing that. Oh, shit. Yeah, I went too far and hit the... <laughs> The rim of the trampoline, geez, it hurt. You need but, to wrap but, yourself in cotton wool, mate. No, that's, it makes you worse. <laughs> yeah, that, that's right. So I'd rather, yeah. It's yeah. like the old footy thing. The harder you go, the less likely you're going to get hurt. That's it. Yeah. That's it. Yep. And um, you said that you were the second amputee in Australia to complete your surf life-saving bronze medallion. Yep. That must be a pretty proud achievement for you. Yeah, it was. And, and uh, I think I said before, it's about having the right people around you because I didn't think that was an option. Like, I really didn't. I didn't think that 
one surf life saving would allow me to do it because there's a fair bit of responsibility mm. with that. They're signing off saying that, you know, if someone's in trouble, you can go save them. Yep. Um, so I came back, um, back from surgery and I'd actually only, I think I had my surgeries for, um, the infection around November and then January, the bronze medallion course was getting done and, I remember towards the end of the year, Grant and Brent Armistead were sort of sitting there and said, oh, you're doing your bronze, aren't you? I thought they were joking, but they mm-hmm. were serious. Yep. And, uh, they knew you pretty well then. Yeah. They knew you were capable. That's the kind of people you need around you. Yep. The ones that are going to say, not, you know, wrap you in cotton wool, they're going to actually say, yeah, you can do this. Yep. And so I said, oh, look, I'll do it. And I, you know, I didn't really think it was anything special, but I got, it was really good because I was surrounded... Uh, I actually saw some videos back and just the support I got through that, you know, I think back and I was out swimming. I'm not a good swimmer, but um, there was nippers either side of me on their boards. Yep. They sort of let everyone else go and they just were beside me, you know, um, telling me, you know, encouraging me, getting me through it and you can do this. And I'm dolphin diving and I was coming back in and I thought, this leg's not feeling quite right. And I had to do my run. And I got up out of the water and my foot had actually turned, the prosthetic foot had, one of the screws wasn't done up properly. Yeah. And it had turned, how's this for, it, it had turned exactly to where the position was that my foot was dislocated in. Right. Yeah. So yep. I had to do the run with my foot sideways. Yep. But um, the kids were just like, you can do it. And uh, so I did it. Yep. Yeah. But it was, I didn't realize that there wasn't many amputees that had done it it wasn't until surf life-saving australia sort of got wind of the story and had a chat to me and said yeah there's only one i think he's a paralympian up in sunshine coast some way that he was a swimmer and obviously um yeah could do the bronze medallion pretty easy being a swimmer yep um so i was the first in tassie and second in australia to do it which yeah i couldn't really care too much about that but just you know going through the process and knowing that yeah, you can do stuff like that. Mm. Um, that was more important to me than the actual accolades of... But, uh, yeah, I'm sort of regret doing it now because now I have to patrol and... <laughs> now they put you to work. Yeah, now I'm hard at work. <laughs> yeah. It's funny, you sit down there on the beach and you'll be on patrol and you see people from out of area that'll come and they, they'll come and talk to you and then look at you and then look at the water thinking, do I want to go in there? <laughs> this is a bloke that's got to save me. You <laughs> no, might outswim them. Well, they, or that or they think there's a shark out there that's got me. <laughs> so I have said it a few times. They were, oh, what happened to you? I was like, oh, I just don't swim too deep. Yeah. There's a few sharp teeth out there. Yeah, you're a good advertisement. Keep yeah. everyone safe in the water. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Between the flags, no sharks. There. Absolutely. Um, what would you say is your outlook on life these days? Do you still do you still have your good and bad days, or are you still pretty positive these days? Or? Yeah, no, nah, I still have me my good and bad days. I often find my bad days are when I'm not when I'm not up to what I think I should be. Yep. Like sometimes I've got to square myself up because, and I think it was my wife that sort of caught me on a bad day and squared me up and and. She said, what are you upset about? And I said, oh, you know, I want to be doing this, that, and the other. And she said, what are you comparing yourself to? And it wasn't, it was a good question because I hadn't actually thought what I was upset about. Like, she's, and I said, well, 
prior to my injury, you know, I could do this and this and this. And she said, yeah, but you can't think about that. Like compare yourself prior to the amputation with your fused ankle. You're like 50 times better than that. So mm-hmm. stop your sucking. You can't, you can't compare yourself to what you were prior to the injury. Cause that's not, that's irrelevant. Mm. Like you, you've come a long way and you're doing well. So just, you know, be happy with that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the, there's always down days and I, I try and stay, um, optimistic and positive with it all, but you know, I'm human, yep. you know, pain, I have bad, it's usually when I have bad night's sleep, um, cause it, phantom pain will often come on. I'll be totally fine all day. And as soon as you take your leg off at night to go to sleep, it, it kicks in. Yep. Um, so it'll affect your sleep really bad. And, you know, there's been times where I've woken up for work and, looked at my watch to see how much sleep I got and it'll say an hour. Yeah. Um, just tossed and turned all night and then my back starts hurting. Yeah. You know, it's sort of, you can get in this real bad spiral. Um, uh, and then, yeah, lack of sleep is one of the reasons that your phantom pains will get worse. So yeah, you don't sleep well because of the pain and then yep. the pain gets worse. and you, snowball. Yeah, you end up, uh, yeah, going downhill pretty quick. But um, I'm, I'm getting a lot better at managing it all now. Yeah and uh keep myself in check yeah um and like i I follow a lot of amputees on social media and i look at them and think oh look at what they're doing and blah 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 and yeah it wasn't until i actually got to talk to a few of them that they said yeah that's just what i'm showing you i'll still go through all the same things you do yeah and that's where social media can be you know pretty misleading sometimes misleading you you really only put the the good things out there and yeah you have this false illusion as to what people are doing and and how they're achieving things yeah do you also look back though like as soon as you said you know looking at people on social media and and, you know what they can do do you um do you sort of reflect on people that are probably looking at you though and saying look at what he's look at what he can do from what he's been through um i don't like to but um yeah yeah it's i sort of i had a weird experience in that i i I'm real stupid. I just, I just, it's life to me and I'm getting on with it. I don't want to hear all the nonsense. I just want to be treated as I was. Yep. Um, but I remember going to Melbourne one day for one of my surgeries and I had a Uber driver, Indian guy, and I'm having a bit of a chat to him and, you know, telling him what had happened and cause we're in the car for a fair while. And he said, it's really interesting. Your story, you ought to go on TikTok." which I'd never even heard of. I had no idea what mm. it was. Yep. Um, I said, what is it? Anyway, I was in, I was actually going into um, hospital for surgery. So I'm sitting in a hospital bed and I thought I'll do a bit of looking into what this TikTok is. And and so I I did and I, I was bored. So I put a video together and threw it on there and it took off. Got like over half a million views. Wow. And so... I'm not on TikTok and my kids are. I'll have to get on that yeah, a look. <laughs> nah, don't. No, I've got some stupid videos. Not worth me while? No. Nah. <laughs> I, I actually like it better than... I think the algorithm's better than other stuff because it, it puts the stuff that you want to see on it. Yeah, cool. Um, but yeah, so I I got quite a few followers pretty quickly, like a few thousand, and um, got a heap of messages. Like, I, I didn't think I was inspiring. I just put... I just sort of put it there because I wanted to keep record of how it all went yep um but yeah people took some inspiration from i got a ton of messages and even from the they did a bit of a newspaper article here in the advocate and 
from that I got a heap of messages of people just saying you know it's incredible thanks for sharing your story and um yeah so I've only sort of shared the the bare bones of it so coming on something like this and being able to flesh the meat out is a a good opportunity and hopefully it it can help someone out there because it it is an experience and I'm real with it like Mm. I'll I'll tell all I don't really hide anything um so hopefully yeah if someone one person gets something from it then that makes my experience all the better absolutely and you know i know that you don't like to reflect on it yourself but it is something that is going to inspire other people and you know obviously that's the whole purpose of, of the podcast is to do that but just a couple of quick ones before we finish up mate um you say your wife's good at giving you advice but what's the best piece of advice that you've been given along the journey and where uh, did it come from i've been given a ton but uh, you, you flick this question through to me and i, I um yeah i had to think pretty hard and there's a there's a guy it actually came from a book a guy named Paul de Gelder so he's a Australian he was a I think he was in a army something one of the top army guys and then he ended up being a navy diver um, which is like the equivalent of a navy seal over in America but um, he was doing a a um, like a training thing over in Sydney Harbour and got bitten by a bull shark that took his took his leg and his arm. Um, he almost passed away from it but yeah one of his mates kept him alive and he ended up um, doing the rehab and and wrote a book and he's a real down-to-earth guy I've actually had a had the opportunity to have a chat with him uh, over social media and he's an absolute legend of a guy but his book I read and one of the things that he said that helped him was to adapt and overcome and that was a, a mantra that they sort of held through the military. Yep. You know, no matter what situation they were in, you you have to adapt and overcome. Mm-hmm. And he sort of talked about that, but then applied it to to his rehab and um, doing, you know, getting through what the experience that he went through. And um, I've always used that. Like, there's no use sooking about what's happened. It's happened. Yeah. Like, you know, I can't change it. So for me to get the best out of it i've got to look forward and overcome like do what i can do to to overcome it um and he's doing incredible things now he's over in america and he's if you ever watch shark week he's like the main guy that runs it all now yep um yeah and he's been he's been on joe rogan's podcast i think that's number two in the world it is yours isn't yeah it It used to be number one used to be number one yeah yeah so (laughs) he's been on that and he's yeah just doing incredible things and yeah, though I, I I took that from him, and that's probably what's helped me the most is just to don't talk about it. I mean, you can have your down days; that's fine. That you're human; that's going to happen. Yep. But don't let them last for too long. And I think it might have been in his book too. Like, give yourself twenty four hours and then get out of it. Yep. Um, whatever you got to do, um, to get out of it. So yep. yeah. You probably answered the next question that I was going to ask you: is what advice would you give to someone who's going through the same struggles of? probably the same sort of thing is it yeah so something I, I being stuck in melbourne was hell for that six months in rehab but i took a lot from it um because i got to see a lot of people come in and out of those doors and um a lot of amputees in particular and people that had you know woken up gone to work and then had the worst day of their life and you know close to death sort of thing um people that had been burnt from the hips up in massive fires another a mate of mine that i made he he was on a motorbike and kangaroo jumped out pushed him into the bush shattered nearly every bone in his body and 
you know, they, I got to see a lot of people come through those doors and I'm quite observant. Um, and so I, I saw a lot of people, there was sort of two types of people and one of them was a person that sort of took self pity and withdrew themselves and, you know, wallowed in the misery of it all. But there was others that they'd, they'd gone through hell but they'd come over to you and say, oh, you know, how are you going? And, and get out and try and make other day, other people's days better. And I, I really learned from that, that when you're having those down days, the worst thing you can do is sort of think about, well, he's me. Yeah, it happens and that's a natural feeling and that's fine. But the best way to get out of it is to go out and help someone. You know, go and find something to do for someone else because you'll get... And Tim Blair, I listened to his podcast and he's a, he's a massive one for that. Like, you know, that you can just hear the, the joy he gets out of doing these crazy things yep. for other people, yep. which it, it's not, it's not um, just chance that that happens, that all the happiest people are the ones that are giving of themselves so much. Um, so I, I really tried to, to apply that as much as I can, you know, if I'm feeling yep. a bit down or whatever. Um, I go and try and do something and I'm lucky in the job that I'm in. Um, I, I have to do that for work anyway. You know, I have to try and be an example for the kids and, yeah. um, you know, I, I try and do what I can and I'm kind of selfish in the way that I give because <laughs> I know that that works. So, yeah. uh, yeah, I guess the accountant in me, if something works, you know, it's pretty black and white and you know, I'm pretty calculated with how I do things. And I know if I give here, I'm going to gain there. Yep. So. The left column is going to match the right column. That's it. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Excellent. No, it's good advice, mate. And you know, again, just just coming on this podcast, you know, that's all the questions that I've got for you. But I could talk to you for for another bloody hour. But as I say, just coming on the podcast itself, um, like you say, with your with your advice of of doing things for other people, like you don't know how many people I think that this podcast is going to help. Um, and the beauty of it is you won't know. They're not going to be coming back praising you up or pissing in your pocket or anything like that, which I know that you don't want. So it's probably a really good medium for you for that because, you know, your story, it's, you know, it's, it's so inspirational and so positive for people. And I think it's, um, I only thought of a quote today when I knew I was catching up with you. It was, um, life's 10% of what happens to you and 90% how you respond to it, which I'm sure you've heard before. And I think, you know, you're a testament to that, but one quote that you just said in our, in our chat, I think is just as, as relevant. And it was the one that you said to your kids, you know, this is tough, but we're tougher. Yeah. I think if somebody is going through a tough time and they can take on that mantra that, you know, they can get through anything. Um, I think you're an example of that mate and can't thank you enough for coming in and, no, look, I I need to thank you because it it's an incredible thing you're doing here. Thanks, it really man. is because um, you know you can read, you can get on YouTube and see people and you know be inspired through things like that. But hearing people's story from that you see down the street or that you know of, like I've listened to Tim Blair speak at my school. I've seen Brian Lyons running down here. Like yep. these are all people that I've seen and and been a part of. But uh, you actually letting them tell their story is is quite inspirational but yeah i appreciate it but if there is anyone out there like i've been through a pretty unique experience and i've learned a lot from it and so if there is anyone that needs someone to talk to i'm always always happy to to talk to and it seems anyone that breaks an ankle now i get a message straight away if anyone's been had their leg amputated they soon get in contact with me yep but um look i'm happy to do that because it is 
you know, we're, as I said, I'm, I'm here to help other people because that actually helps me as well. Yeah. Oh, cheers, mate. Well, like I say, all the best with it and look out for those sharks on the beach. Hey, no worries about them. They can't buy through this medal, so I think I'll win the next battle. No, thank you. Appreciate it. No worries, mate. Thanks again to Brett for taking the time to come in and tell of his journey. I'll say again what a privilege it was to sit with him, and I'm sure there's something in his story for everyone. Whether you're going through tough times yourself, it's your outlook and attitude that will help pull you out of it, and I think his story is fantastic, and it puts life into perspective for all of us that when you're having a bad day or going through a tough time yourself, someone out there has gone through the same thing or worse, and many have come out the other side. I dare say that Brett's experience has reshaped the person he is today and made him a fantastic role model for the community and his family. As you heard, Brett's story was recommended to me as I had no idea about him previously, so if anyone else has anyone out there that they feel has got a great story to tell, make sure you send them in, and to those who already have sent people in, thank you very much and keep them coming. Hopefully if we continue to spread some positive inspirational stories through the community, it will help everyone just that little bit.